Welcome to the Positivity Podcast, where we explore the skills and strategies of personal development with cutting-edge researchers, authors, entrepreneurs, and experts. Daniel Coyle studies talent, particularly the communities that launch a disproportionate number of success stories. Places like a ramshackle tennis court in Moscow, a music academy in New York's Adirondacks, and a baseball mad island in the Caribbean. We discuss the environments and coaching strategies that enable talent to thrive. We also talk about how to join talent hotbeds, increase your learning velocity, motivation, and more. So, without further ado, Daniel Coyle on this Human OS podcast. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Um, I'm, I found your work, I guess, through the interwebs, but was really struck by how comprehensively you attack the topic of talent, both in terms of the roles that it plays in individuals' lives, as well as people's journeys to acquiring it, as well as the environment. So I'm really, really excited to dive in. Um, the first question I have for you is what sparked your interest in this topic of talent and what was your journey writing the book? Well, if you had to sort of play the tape all the way back, uh, if we want to play it all the way back, it would probably be growing up in a pretty competitive family with a couple of really competitive brothers and always figuring out how can I get a little bit better than that guy? What is the difference? And as I got older and became a journalist, I became um, – you know, as a journalist, you're always sent to profile people, whether it's a politician or an athlete or a musician. And you always end up sort of circling around the same questions. You know, well, how did you get so good? Um, and you send up, end up seeing the same patterns in their answers, the same patterns of behavior, the same patterns of motivation. But the book really started when I came across a clip of uh, it was about a tennis club in Moscow called Spartak. And Spartak had produced more top 20 women players than the entire United States. It was one club. And I started digging and I found out that they had one indoor court. So basically this one indoor court had produced more top 20 players in the entire United States over a period of about five or 10 years. And I made a call to find out more. And the guy I talked to had just been there and he said, you got to go there. It's incredible. It's just this dumpy place and all these brilliant players are there. And so it got me really interested in these kinds of places because Tennis isn't the only place where they have them. You know, you've got that same kind of place in baseball. You've got the same kind of place when it comes to playing the violin or chess or math. And so these same talent hotbeds and these same patterns um, really fascinated me. And I began to visit them. I spent a couple of years and about 50,000 miles going from place to place and looking at the patterns of behavior, the patterns of motivation and the patterns of coaching. And also spending a lot of time in laboratories looking at the neurology of learning looking at what happens to the brain when it learns, when it changes. And, you know, we're grown up, we're, we're taught a story about talent. We're taught this really beautiful story about talent. We're taught it in movies and books. And it's a, it's this story we're told over and over again. And the story that we're taught growing up is that babies are born with gifts. You know, that they're babies. When you're a baby, when Michelangelo was a baby, he had this incredible gift. And when Michael Jordan was a baby, he had this incredible gift. And that is a great story. But 
it, it's not true, actually. When you look at super talented people, what you find are these sort of supercharged environments where they're practicing in a really particular way. They're practicing on the very edges of their ability. They're reaching past what they can do. They're failing. And then they're reaching again. And that process, which, which I call deep practice, is at the core of what's happening in these talent hotbeds and what's happening in any place where the human brain is getting better and faster. Um, and of course, a lot of these places have to do with music or sports or whatever, but you know, there's no such thing as muscle memory. All the muscle memory we have is in our brain. So when you learn to play a song, when you learn to kick a ball, or when you learn to do some coding, um, it's all the same sort of process where you are actually building circuitry inside your brain to function over time a little faster, a little better, a little more accurately. And at the heart of that process is this substance called myelin. And it's, it's, if you want to really dive into that, that's kind of the next level. But, but basically these patterns are what human learning is all about and what human talent is all about. So what does this deep practice look like in these talent hotbeds? So you, you went to the tennis place. What were the other different hotbeds that you went to? I visited, uh, the, uh, some Caribbean islands in baseball. I visited Brazil for soccer. I visited a, a music camp in upstate New York. I visited a vocal studio in Dallas um, and about five or six other places. So it was, it was a variety in every place. It's funny you say, what, what does it look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. Uh, your face looks like Clint Eastwood when you're practicing this way. You know that kind of narrow-eyed, tight-jawed, like intense look of somebody who's reaching for something and can't quite get it and is failing and is kind of pissed off about it and is going to reach again. It's this uncomfortable feeling. It looks ugly, actually. It looks kind of ugly. There's a great, uh, I opened the book actually with the story of Clarissa, who is a, a young clarinet player. She's part of this study where they videotaped her practice for years, for like 10 years. So all of her practice sessions have been taped and they can look and see exactly where she progressed the most, like what her best, deepest practice looked like. And so they have that on tape and it looks really ugly. She's got this Clint Eastwood face. She's playing a little bit and then she stops. She makes a mistake and she stops and she feels that mistake. And then she starts to play a little more and she feels that mistake. And and she just, rather than blowing through the clarinet, she just does the fingers really slowly. She's on the edge of her ability. She's reaching and repeating. Reach is a really important word in this thing. You're reaching past what she can do. She's paying keen attention to her mistakes. And she's making, every time you make she makes a mistake, she's feeling it. And that's kind of funny because there's a couple different practice sessions that were taped in, in a row. And right after she did this real intense practice, deep practice, she did a real shallow practice where she just played along, didn't pay attention to her mistakes. And in the space of those two practice sessions, her efficiency, her learning velocity, which is kind of a cool term, learning velocity, varied by 10 times. Just a slight change in the way she approached it and in her intensity with which she focused on her mistakes and her fixes improved her practice by a factor of 10. So when you talk about high velocity learning, when you talk about accelerated learning, um, that's what it looks like. It looks fitful, painful, um, difficult, intense. And that's the kind of feeling you get in all of these places. So I'm looking like Clint Eastwood as I practice and I got a pit in my stomach. Doesn't sound too appealing, but I guess it's kind of the effortful hard work <laughs> that's necessary. You mentioned learning... I, maybe I played too much of a spin on <laughs> ugly 
But it's also it's also the kid on a skate wiping out with a big smile on his face and going back into the pool and trying to do another another ollie. Um, that also, when you're constantly looping, actually, kid on a skateboard is a beautiful sort of metaphor for high velocity learning. I mean, they're probably the fastest learners on the universe. Like of all the people in the universe who are, if you could teach algebra and coding the way people learn to skateboard, you could teach algebra and coding really fast. Um, so what, are the, what is happening inside that skateboard park or inside that swimming pool? There's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of intense watching of other people and copying them. And you're constantly thrown back into the same motion over and over and over where you're reaching and repeating, reaching and repeating. So why are they such fast learners? It's because the space that they've designed is perfect for learning. How do you know that you're moving at a fast learning velocity? You are Because making... I, I could imagine a lot of people, you right. know, if you're by yourself doing the skateboard, and crashing or you're writing and you, you know you're like oh my gosh this is hard there's got to be part of you that says i'm really learning now and there's got to be part of you who's like if i'm not doing this and learning the right way then this is just exhausting my effort how do you know that you're you're really in the learning velocity in the right way right right that's a, that's a that's a really good question the um there's, there's a larger process here where you, you start off by sort of engraving what you want on your brain, really staring. If it's a sport, you want to really be staring. You want to know what you're reaching for. You want to know what that's going to, what you, what you think that's going to feel like. Then you want to try it. And then you want to measure the distance between your try and the, and the, and the right result. And that process of staring, engraving, reaching, and then measuring is really at the core of it. If you are, and a, a good rule of thumb is that you're, you're maybe failing, you're succeeding maybe 60 to 85% of the time. Um, if you're making it 95% of the time, you're not really on the edge of your ability, right? If you're making it like 40% of the time, you're too far from the edge of your ability. You're sort of thrashing around. You'd call that sort of the thrashing zone. There's a, there's a term that, that, uh, that's used in this area called the sweet spot. And the sweet spot is funny because it tastes sort of sour. It doesn't really feel very sweet to be there, but it's that sweet spot on the edge where you're failing 70, 80% of the time, or no, you're making it 70, 80% of the time. You're failing 20 to 30% of the time, but you're failing enough and you are um, reaching enough. It's a good combination where the learning gets sort of maximized. So yeah, you, you know, because it's not comfortable, you know, because you can clearly identify the mistakes and the gap between where you are now and where you want to be. If you have a feel for that gap, I messed up here. I messed up there. I got a little further here. That is that stepwise, difficult, complex process of learning because you're actually building those wires. Every time you make a mistake, you're, you're able to isolate. Okay, this is what I want to do, not that. And so it feels like, it, it feels like, you know, building something with Legos, sort of. Okay, these two Legos fit together. No, these two don't. Let's try this again. Now these two do fit together. So it feels sort of like that. And it is emotionally frustrating. And a lot of times, that's why it is important, why in a lot of these places you find unusual amounts of passion. Because it's actually irrational to push yourself. It's actually irrational, sort of, to want to spend that much time in the sweet spot. It's really difficult to spend time there. So that's why the motivation and the fuel tank end up being such a huge part of the equation. So motivation, fuel tank, 
it's hard to be in the sweet spot. I actually earlier this afternoon talked with Cal Newport about a lot of deliberate practice. So you you two are a great complement. Yeah. I'm really curious to to move the conversation towards the environment. I mean, mm-hmm. it's amazing to hear this tennis place and the recording studio. There's this disproportionate amount of incredibly successful people coming out of these small places. And you know, how much of it is the place versus the person? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. Well, let's talk about the place a little bit. The, the commonalities of a lot of these places, um, actually my brother named them Chicken Wire Harvards because they were all <laughs> dumpy. They weren't nice. And when I looked into the science of that, there was a great uh, social scientist who told me, well, of course that makes sense. Luxury is a narcotic. When you sort of surround yourself with beautiful objects and nice lawns, um, your brain sort of gets the message, you made it. You made it. You made it. These places, especially like the music camp, these were just like, they looked like prisons almost. They just looked, they, they looked like really run down summer camps. And um, that is sort of quasi purposeful, rather it has a purpose. So that's one thing that they've So got. when you say we, you made it, is, is this subconsciously you just are feeling comfortable so you're not going to be pursuing things uncomfortable or, you know, you say you're, right. you're, you're, okay. That's right. Your mind says, oh, you made it. You made, you're in the bigs now. You've got it. You've got a fluffy towel, a wooden locker. Um, you know, why are you trying so hard if you've got, if you're, if everything in your life is taken care of? Hmm. Right. Right. So the, but the other things about, <clears throat> excuse me, about the place that are, that are sort of fascinating is you sort of go into it thinking, oh, they're going to be working eight hours a day at these places. They're going to be spending nothing but that. They don't. They don't. They, intensive practice, deep practice is hard enough to where you can't really do it for that long a day. There's kind of a limit to what you can, how much you can grow your brain or how much effort you can put into this process. So what I found is they ended up working pretty hard, maybe three hours a day at the most, um, sometimes less. That but those are, those are Clint Eastwood face hours, right? That's right. Those are, those are high intensity hours. They, they pay deep attention to, um, to how they spend. And the other thing they spend deep attention to is practice design, you know, practice design. There are tiny changes that you can make that make huge differences in your learning velocity. And an example in music would be this. Okay. Is it more effective to play the song through 20 times in a row or try to play it five times in a row without making a mistake? And if you make a mistake, you have to go back to zero. Now, the first example is sort of the grinder, ditch digging, I'm going to go, I'm going to go do a lot of reps kind of approach. Not as effective as creating a small game. In the second example, you're creating a small game. You have to play it perfectly. You have to get every note exactly right. You have to do that three or four or five times in a row. And if you make a mistake, you go back to zero. Much, much more effective. What What do you mean by game? You gamify it. You, you turn, rather than simply slogging through and counting the reps, you actually turn it into a little game to where the object of the game is to reach some standard of perfection that you can't quite reach. So if you practice design these tiny changes, um, what's the nature of them? You know, because there's so many different... Isolate, to isolate those moments and to perfect the movements that you want to make mentally. Um, 
if you're simply playing something through 20 times, you are what you count, right? If you're just playing through 20 times, you're just counting to 20 and you're not paying attention to the way you're playing the song or the way you're coding the phrase, um, then you're not really in deep practice. You're not really paying deep attention to the mistakes you're making. But if you, for example, play it, play the game or slow it down, how slow can you play it? This is true across all in sports and in music, this process of slow practice. Why do we see slow practice? You know, when I went to Spartak uh, to see the tennis club, tennis players play, that was the first thing I saw was everybody swinging in slow motion. They call it imitatia. And every player does it from the oldest to the youngest. Super slow motion. Now, why is and, and when you go to the music camp, you see the same thing. Actually, they had a rule where if you played a song so, so fast that someone could recognize it, you were playing it too fast. You had to play it unrecognizably slowly to play it properly. Now, why are people in both places using essentially the same practice technique? Because slowing it down is like putting a magnifying glass on your ability. If you play that note imperfectly, you will hear that when you play it. If you don't quite have that transition or you don't quite have that wrist angle right and you're just hurrying through your serve, you will not sense it. You're slowing it down so you're designing practice so that you can place a magnifying glass over the skill and get it exactly correct. So that kind of design is what, uh, is what, practic what effective practice design is. And you, know, you, can, you can also break things down into soft skills and hard skills. Soft skills being skills of flexibility, recognition, and reaction, and hard skills being skills where you want everything to be exactly the same every time. And those are practiced in different ways. So really effective environments, there's no luxury, two to three hours, limited practice, there's practice design. Any other trends you saw amongst these hotbeds of talent and the environments they create? Yeah, a lot of them were run by coaches who were badasses. Now, I say that in kind of a half-joking way, but it was funny, but they all drove muscle cars, even like the old lady violin teacher, they drove muscle cars. They were people who genuinely connected to their pupils and who genuinely challenged them, challenged the whole person. Um, there's a lot of coaches in our world now that I would call sort of waiter coaches, meaning that they, they exist to um, – as kind of a service industry. You know, they want to make people feel good. They want to provide certain services. These coaches were not waiters. These coaches challenged people deeply and um, forced them to dig deep and they were tough. They were tough people. And that kind of toughness is the attitude that you, that you find in these places. Um, they're not super soft and warm and fuzzy. Um, they're not cold and mechanistic either. Um, but uh, there is a certain... Uh, show up every day, workmanlike, uh, blue-collar ethic of these places. And you actually see that same blue-collar ethic when you scratch the surface of any top athlete, for instance. Um, you know, it's the, it's the Kobe Bryants and the Michael Jordans of the world who are out there doing their work every single day, who are the first ones to the gym and the last ones to leave, um, who value uh, time and repetition and who take their craft, they take their craft very seriously. So that's another, another sort of pattern that we see in these, in these places. I'd love to dig deeper into that. You said that the coaches really connect genuinely and really challenge. What, what's the nuance of each of those skills? Yeah. And the connection, they're almost like emotional athletes. They're finding a point of connection. Being a student of someone and doing 
I mean, coaches occupy this immensely powerful position in our lives. When we each reflect about who the most important people are, a lot of times they're coaches and teachers, right? And to let someone in your life as a coach is a massively um, big moment. And so these coaches end up being very skilled at finding that point of connection. Because you're not going to have somebody work really hard. If you're going to have a relationship with a coach or a teacher, you're going to be giving to them. You're going to be sacrificing. You're going to be making yourself vulnerable to them. We don't do that as human beings easily. So the coaches who are able to create that connection are ones who are who are able to find that point of connection. Maybe for one person it is humor. Maybe for another person it's it's kind of a light touch. Maybe for somebody else it's a real intensity. But they're always doing detective work on their students. They're always trying to find out why are they here. Are they here to please their parents? Are they here because they love the sport and they're obsessed by it? Or they love the process and they're obsessed by it? Are they here because they love um, being a star in music? Why are they here? Why do they want to learn? And they often sort of engender uh, useful conversations because if you're going to work hard to be great, you can't be doing it to make somebody happy. You got to be doing it for your reasons. And coaches help people discover what those reasons really are um, because it's not, it's not easy to do this work. It's not easy to spend a few hours a day on the edge of your ability, getting all Clint Eastwood on it. So guys who can, coaches, men and women who can, who can inspire that are ones who can really bond with the, uh, with the learner and, and, and help them. It's, it's really, it's really a team effort. You know, when you really, if you think about great skill and you think about the process that makes it, the coach plays a massive, massive role in designing the environment, creating the emotions. Um, you know, it, it you know, everything is a team sport. And, and and so having those kind of emotional connections where it feels like a family, that's what you find in all of these, all of these, you know, any coach or teacher across the spectrum, whether it's math, chess, art, music, coding, whatever it is, they'll say, oh, they were like a father figure, a mother figure. And it's that kind of family connection that you end up getting because that's what family does for each other. You know, you need to have that kind of bond in order to produce that kind of effort and to you know, hopefully get those kind of rewards. And that bond comes from really doing the detective work to understand the people. It, it's from the conversations of clarifying why they're there and maybe helping them search for a deeper reason. That's um, right. Now, another thing you mentioned is inspiration. And mm -hmm. at the start of our conversation, you mentioned that you were studying everybody. You were saying, what, what about the environments, the motivations, and the behaviors are unique about these places. So my question is, are there trends in the attitudes and behaviors of people? And I guess similarly to your point about coaches really being able to have the conversations on why they're doing it. Are there, are there trends on reasons that are good reasons to do it and reasons that are not good to develop talent? Or, Motivation is, yeah. is so fascinating. You know, when you really start unpeeling the onion and try to figure out why does somebody really, really want to do it, what you end up doing is quickly bumping into a, an idea, a concept, which you know I would call the windshield. And whenever you have, you know, we we spend our lives looking around at people around us, and whenever you have somebody being highly motivated, it's because inevitably at some point. They stared at somebody and they said, I want to be like them. Maybe they saw a surfer on TV and decided that's, 
that was the moment in the windshield. Maybe they had an older brother or older sister that did something that really inspired them. But that person in the windshield, you know, it's funny when you look at, there's an example I give in the book about sprinters. And when you look at the fastest runners of all time in the hundred meters, they, none of them are first born. All of them averaged fourth of five children. Now it's extremely unlikely to have all the 10 fastest runners in the world be the fourth of five children on average. But think about the windshield they had growing up and then think about the windshield the firstborn has grown up. Those people grew up every day looking at people they wanted to catch and they wanted to be and they wanted to, wanted to run faster than. You find the exact same pattern, for example, in musicians. Let's look at the Jackson family. Who's the best singer in the Jackson family? Is it the oldest or the youngest? It's not Tito, right? Michael is the best singer in the Jackson family. Look at the Osmonds. Who's the best Osmond? It's not, it's, 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 it's the younger ones. Look at, um, look at the best NFL runners. They're all youngest kids. Um, look at the Jonas brothers. Who's the best Jonas brother? It's the youngest one. So you can, you can sort of go and use this idea of the windshield, um, to apply to some of these talent hotbeds because they start, the great thing about a talent hotbed is that it fills the windshield of these place of these people. Whenever you have like one person from a neighborhood succeed, or say in Moscow it happened to be this this these tennis players. At first there was one who succeeded, and then next year there were three, and then next year there were six, and then next year there were seven, and the next year there are twelve, and it grows exponentially. Not because there's something in the water, not because their genes are different, but because they suddenly have someone in their windshield they can say, hey. This person did it. He just lived down the street from me. How good are they? So that's why talent has always appeared in clusters. If you look at the great composers of Austria and France and Germany uh, in the 17 and 1800s, if you look at the great writers of the Shakespearean era, all these people clustered in a very tight geographic center. And that's not a coincidence because they were filling each other's windshields. So the lesson becomes, who's in our windshield? How can we control it? And, you know, if you're a parent, think about your kid's windshield. Think about people you want to throw up there, people you want them to stare at. Um, one psychologist told me uh, that to stare is to love at some level. To stare at something, to stare at it really deeply is just to be totally in love with it. And so when we find ourselves really, really staring at something or someone, it's a moment to pay deep attention and say, you know what? I think I'm really into this. I think this is for real. I think I need, I have a lot of energy in this area. I've got a huge fuel tank. I can use this fuel tank to practice deeply and to get, and to get better over time. What advice would you give to someone who says, man, I want to become a better writer. I want to become a better coder. I want to find the hotbed. <laughs> you know, how do I find one? Like I, I want to, I want to be part of these communities. How would you evaluate communities or go about searching for them beyond, beyond a Google search and a meetup group, you know, anything that people should keep in mind as they're looking for something like this? Yeah, there's different ways to, you know, I can speak it. I don't know much about coding, but I can certainly speak to it from a, from a writing point of view. Um, you know, there are communities, all, all proximity matters a lot, you know, and, and so finding people in your area that are passionate about the same thing can be, can be a really, really important way. But the beautiful thing about, coding and the beautiful thing about writing is that it actually exists on a page or on a screen and you can study it endlessly endlessly every writer who i know 
uh, who does well, ends up spending a great deal of time falling in love with certain books and reading them and rereading them and breaking them down um, and analyzing them to see why they work. I, I recently came across this thing from when I was in college and I would take these three by five cards and whenever I came across a phrase that I liked in a magazine article or a book or anything, I would write it down and keep it because I wanted to start capturing. I was really into writing and I wanted to capture those beautiful phrases and to find some way of sort of capturing that material, um, you know, those lines of code or those, those finding a way to sort of sift and capture the material that you really admire and the material that you really um, appreciate can be a first step, first step toward that. But in terms of communities, I mean, yeah, finding people and finding the people to spend time with is, is key to it. And it, it's a great, it's got to know exactly how you'd go about finding your, your windshield full of coders. For people who want to be top performers, and how do you suggest they go about asking for advice and getting feedback and perspective? Are there any sort of skills in that that are really crucial that you've seen in the hotbeds? Yeah, the notebook is probably your most important tool in that in that department. These, you know, if you're trying to grow a skill, you are in a construction process. And if you're building anything in the world, if you're building a a, a chair, a table, a house, you need a blueprint, you know, you need a blueprint and a notebook is that blueprint. Um, a notebook is a way to capture where you are and where you want to go and to capture things in, in a detail that you will forget. Like your mind is really built for having ideas. It's not built for holding them. You know, it's really not built for holding them. So you need to have a notebook or some way on a smartphone or whatever to capture the day-to-day -day reaches, mistakes, failures, attempts, directions, strategies that you're using so that you can make the most of those of that time. Um, it's a time you know, to reflect, um, which can be useful kind of emotionally, but mostly it's useful as a tracking device. Like, this is where I was three weeks ago, and this is what I was working on, and wait, wait a minute, maybe I should change direction and work on this, and what do I love, where am I at? What didn't work, what did work, there's some really, really basic things that cut across every talent in the world um, if you write them down. You know, that's the, that's the key. Write a little bit down every day so you can figure out where you are and where you want to go. And on the flip side, you mentioned that what really great coaches do is they are really good at challenging uh, their students. What's the nuance of good ways to challenge and bad ways to challenge? You know, um, I think there's, I think, I think the challenge itself matters less than the reaction to the challenge. A lot of times when whatever the challenge is, um, what matters is kind of the attitude that you take into it and take out of it. Um, there's a certain kind of crazy irrationality that's actually helpful in taking on challenge. You know, most talented people say, some version of the same thing. Man, if I knew how hard I had to work going into this, I don't know if I ever would have done it. But they get obsessed. They get, um, you know, sort of captivated and enmeshed in this process of getting better. And that obsession and enmeshment is actually a really good thing. So as a talent, as a person who's trying to grow talent, you're constantly flipping. Sort you're, you're sort of toggling between this irrational confidence that you're going to just make it work and you're going to climb that mountain, and this very rational assessment of what just happened. You need to combine these two things, this kind of engine that keeps you reaching with a very kind of cool headed, um, 
assessment of yourself to see where am I at and what am I, what do I honestly need to work on? What do I, where are my really my weak points and where are really my strong points? Not, not BSing yourself. Um, and the other important thing about that challenge is to take those results seriously, but not personally, mm-hmm. you know, to take mistakes seriously, but not see them as a verdict to say, Oh, you know, I'm no good. Uh, but to take those results very, very seriously. So, yes, yeah, it is a, it is a parad- all great things are paradoxical, right? I mean, there are paradoxes at the heart of all big ideas and of all big projects. And that's one of the core paradoxes of this talent building process is that it, it combines this kind of passion and irrationality with a supreme rationality. Mm. And for a coach who's trying to help students through this, what effect do they have on grit and affecting the mindset of um, the students involved? How have you seen them kind of shift them to the right focus? And so if you sort of defines the emotional space where stuff is happening and they do that with the vocabulary they use. For instance, in Russia, you do not play tennis. The word is, I think, baratsia, which means fight. You fight tennis, which is really an interesting way to think about it. It's a, it's a small change, but it really captures a certain kind of approach. So in the very words that a coach uses, you can sort of define these kinds of, these kinds of spaces. Um, you know, a, a coach defines stuff in terms of the, the care and the emotional tone that he has throughout the process. So it's, it's really interesting. I mean, in, in some ways... Um, in the modern world, there is a sense that if you go to a coach and you do everything they say, that everything's going to work out, that you should just be kind of an obedient robot and do everything the coach says, and then um, everything will work out for yourself. But when you really look at talented people, they are owning it, owning the process. They're challenging their coach a lot of times. They are um, looking beyond simply going by the numbers and being an obedient robot. They are trying to own it and rebuild the process for themselves. So there's, there's often kind of some, some healthy friction between um, really talented, hard-practicing, um, successful people because of that ownership uh, factor, which is a really – I think it's a really, really positive, positive thing um, because it can't, it's not just about kind of – going through the steps and hoping everything works out. It's about really owning every one of those steps and realizing when there's a mistake and when things need, you need to change paths in order to make it work. And that gets back to your point earlier about making sure you're doing it for the right reasons and really knowing your why and, and kind of staying true to that when friction comes up. That's right. Um, you know, as, we're, as we're wrapping up, I know you have another book, The Little Book of Talent, and it's 52 Tips for Improving Your Skills. I'm wondering, out of those 52, what are the three that you would most recommend as a sort of higher leverage thing that you can do to improve your talent? A, a metaphor that I like to use is it's, it's kind of a, a domino effect. I think this is from Tim Ferriss or, um, right. or maybe he got it from somewhere where if you knock down the first domino, it makes everything else easier. <laughs> you know, so it might make the other, the other tips easier to adopt. What are the three tips that you are that are most critical for developing talent? Yeah, I'd say the first one would be stare. You know, a lot of times we want to leap right into something and start doing it, 
but that process of observation, really, really studying what you want, the craft of what you want to do, the end result of what you want, um, really, really studying that until you have internalized it and engraved the inner dynamic of it, you know. In sports, the analogy would be if you want to develop, you know, a certain basketball jump shot, you should be able to see that with your eyes closed. You should be able to imagine yourself doing it over and over again. That engraving process is huge, and it happens through our eyes. I mean, you know, language is a relatively recent development. Human beings had to learn by watching for a long time, and we are we are really good watchers. We're really good starers. So, using that, uh, that that would be that would definitely be one. Um, another one. I think would be to try for one perfect thing a day, one perfect rep, one, one, just try for to do one thing perfectly every day. Um, you know, that perfect line of code, that perfect, that perfect move, um, really engraving that and using, uh, perfection as the highest standard. And the third one would be uh, on a sort of simpler side, take a nap. Taking out every, you know, all the stuff, you're essentially doing these intensive cognitive workouts, um, and there ain't nothing like sleep to make, to both <laughs> consolidate those, those workouts that you do and help you recover from them. Um, it is a miracle drug. And so, and that's one of the things you see when you visit the talent op There's a lot of napping. If you walk in a pro sports locker room two hours before any game, you find people sleeping, you know, and there's a reason they're doing that. That really helps with peak performance. It really helps your your brain and body recover. So take a nap. So as we're ending, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with the audience before we wrap up? Yeah, no, I think um I think it's it's the story that we're told about talent is, you know, in movies and the story of the magical gift is a very seductive story. It's beautiful and it sort of makes you feel special because, oh, what special gifts do I have? You know, I can, um, and it's true, we're all different and it's not like I could go be Michelangelo or you could go be Michael Jordan. You know, there are certain, um, you know, certain limitations on all of us, especially when it comes to, to the physical world. But when you treat it, when you sort of get rid of that story and start treating it like a construction process, it's it's liberating because it really is a more beautiful story because that construction process involves all the people around us. It's a, it is a team activity. All the people we can learn from, all the people we can stare at and copy, all the coaches who can who can inspire us and push us. Um, it is a deeply social uh, process, and in that way, I think it's a lot more beautiful story than simply that magical lottery ticket that we all can hope for. So um, I think that's a story worth reflecting on because it, it helps us build sort of. Rather than you know, talent being something that you're born with alone, it's it's something that you build in community. Awesome, and I think you laid out some amazing environments and all these nuanced aspects of what leads people to being able to develop talent. Thank you so much, and uh, yeah, definitely gonna check out the book. Good. I'm curious to hear what you think, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Thanks. You too.